Do you ever find yourself lost in movies? Not because the movie is boring or hard to follow, but because the movie is packed full of details, adventures, and interesting parts. Maybe in a musical, like Les Mis, you enjoy a particular song so much that you lose track of the storyline. Maybe you are so moved by Fantine's dream that you forget Inspector Javert is breathing down the neck of Jean Valjean. Or maybe in an adventure movie like Lord of the Rings, you are enjoying all of the orc battles, all of the spells being cast by the dueling wizards. You enjoy these little scenes so much that you forget the purpose of the movie, that everybody is on a journey, that they are going to Mordor. Well, throughout these stories and many others, authors have to give us frequent reminders of the big picture or the overall theme to a story or the general movement. Where is everybody going? Well, in all of the Gospels, Jesus is portrayed as moving towards Jerusalem. But in Luke's Gospel, Jesus moves very slowly to the city, and it's easy to forget that Jesus is on a mission. Back in chapter 9, Luke first introduces Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. Luke says that Jesus has set his face to the city. He set his face like a flint, like a rock, and nothing is going to stand in Jesus' way of getting to Jerusalem. Like Frodo and Sam, Jesus has a purpose, to get to the city, and ultimately to get to the cross, not to destroy an evil ring, but to destroy evil itself. After Luke introduced Jesus' journey, a lot of interesting things have happened. Jesus has been casting out demons, which isn't something you see every day in this century or that one. Jesus has been healing women, those who have been bleeding for years, those who have been bent over for almost two decades, and he even raised a young girl from the dead. He's even managed to upset a lot of religious folks. In the midst of all of this excitement, it's easy for us to lose sight of the storyline, to see the movement of Jesus, which is ultimately to Jerusalem. So Luke reminds us in our passage this morning, and in verse 22, he says that Jesus is teaching and healing, but he's also journeying towards Jerusalem. But as quickly as Luke reminds us that Jesus is on this journey to his ultimate destination, he gives us two more interruptions. One interruption is in the form of a question. And the other one is in the form of a warning. Someone comes up to Jesus while he's on this journey and asks, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Now, there are several difficulties and uncomfortable bits in this passage. Anytime we read about places where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, it should make all of us a little bit uncomfortable, whether you're a pastor or the congregation. And this question, will those who are saved be few, is one of those challenging and uncomfortable parts. This particular person is worried about all the unknown implications of Jesus' teaching and the Christian faith. And it's something that us modern Christians still find ourselves struggling with. Maybe you find yourself asking, what about those who have never heard the name of Jesus? What's going to happen to them? What about those who have had bad experiences with the church? What about those who have suffered at the hands of the clergy themselves? What's going to happen to them? Well, questions like this can be quite troubling. And this unnamed individual is worried. He's worried about who will be saved. 
Will there be a lot of people who are saved? Or will it just be a tiny handful? Well, we find ourselves 2,000 years later, and we still see this same question being addressed. There are theologians and churches that align themselves with different views. Uh, Some churches teach that a majority of people, or possibly even everyone, will be saved. Now, people have different views or different reasons for embracing this view. I think some are theologically strong, and I think some are theologically weak. The view that says, well, God loves anybody, he doesn't matter what you do, he's going to save you, I think that would be a theologically weak reason to think there's going to be more people in heaven than less. But there are stronger arguments for this case. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, who is known for being a theological titan and a local Connecticut native, he believed that there would be more people in heaven than not. He had a very positive view of the gospel. He thought the gospel was going to continue to conquer throughout the entire world. And every century, there would be more and more people coming to Christ. And there wouldn't be any uh, remission. It would only continue to grow. Now, the population of the world is expected to peak around 9 billion people in the next century. And if you think about it, if there were a mass revival at the peak of our population and that revival were to last for hundreds or thousands of years, well, that would be a lot of Christians. So some churches, some theologians say, well, there's going to be way more people in heaven than there are not. But other churches teach that there will only be a handful of people who are saved. Uh, The great reformer Martin Luther was not shy to state his opinion on just about anything, and he said that God would damn more people than he would save. Well, he doesn't, you know, he, he lets you know exactly what he thinks, and this is a pretty shocking statement. Uh, I have a friend uh, from South Africa. Uh, he lives in Hong Kong, and he was a great educational mentor of mine. He, he trains many teachers, and he's still making a great influence in the educational world of Hong Kong. And one day I was uh, having lunch with him, and I asked him, did you always want to be a teacher? And he said, oh, no, but whenever I was a young man, I wanted to be a minister, and uh, he's not a Christian to this, you know, today, so it made me think, well, what, what happened in the middle? And he said, as, as he was getting ready to go to seminary, uh, his pastor called him into his office, and he filled up this great big bucket of water. And he told my friend to dip his hands in the water and pull up what he could with his hands. The minister then began to explain that the water in his hands represented those who would go to heaven, and the water in the bucket represented those who would not make it to heaven. Well, this shocked my friend, and he ended up leaving the church as a result. So how does Jesus answer this question? Does he have a view that there's going to be a majority of people in heaven, or just a handful? Well, I don't think Jesus answers this question directly. Because at first, it seems like Jesus is in line with Martin Luther and the priest from South Africa. He says, many will seek to enter the doors of the kingdom, but they will not be able to enter. Those are some pretty sobering words, and Jesus wants us to take them seriously. Many will seek to enter the kingdom, but they will be closed out. Many will say, Jesus, we ate and drank with you. Jesus, we saw you walking in our streets. Jesus, we listened to your teaching. But Jesus will say, sorry, I don't know you. I don't know where you come from. So on the one hand, or at first glance, It looks like there's only going to be a small amount of people who are saved. 
But if we keep reading through this passage, Jesus gives us another perspective. He says that people are going to come from east and from west, from north and south, and recline at Christ's table of fellowship in his kingdom. Now, this does not seem like a mere handful of people receiving salvation, but multitudes from all over the place. In the book of Revelation, John has a peek into heaven. And what he sees is a myriad of people. So many people gathered together worshiping God that he can't even begin to count them all. He says that there are people from every country and language and culture, and they're all worshiping Christ as one unified group. So as we continue reading, we see that Jesus is not acting as one of those grumpy professors who likes to scare freshmen, where he says, look to the right, look to the left. By the end of the semester, one or both of those people will not be here. Rather, Jesus is saying, don't worry so much about the person to your right or to your left. He says, pick up your head, take out your binoculars, and look beyond Israel. Look beyond the immediate. Look all the way up to the north. Do you see Europe up there? Do you see those crazy people worshiping tree spirits and fearing sea monsters? Guess what? They're going to come into the kingdom and they're going to eat with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And take your binoculars and look south. Do you see the sub-Saharan Africa? Do you see all those people who worship their ancestors? Well, in 2,000 years, most of them will worship me. Take your binoculars and look east to Asia and west to the Americas. I have hundreds of millions of people there who will love me more than their own lives. So Jesus does not speak in simple terms about how many will or will not be saved. The question of how many is a mystery. It is a question in which only God knows the answer. So in this passage, Jesus leaves the mysteries of God to God. And he moves to a more personal question. Not how many will be saved, but how can you be saved? But even with this question, Jesus doesn't give us a very direct answer. He answers with the imagery of a door. He tells us to strive to enter the narrow door. Now, the word for strive could be translated as struggle or fight. And the word narrow, this narrow door, gives us a mental picture of something that's not exactly easy to enter into in the first place. Uh, One commentator suggests that this imagery conveys the idea of pursuing a goal, which can only be reached with the full expenditure of all of our energy and all of our effort. This means that the struggle to enter the kingdom of God allows for no laziness and requires maximum commitment. Jesus does not simply say that salvation comes through a few simple steps or even praying the right words or even praying with the right level of sincerity. The imagery he uses suggests that the door of the kingdom is behind enemy lines. And in order to reach that door, we must completely commit our lives to becoming elite warriors, partaking in daily difficult training, and abstaining daily from worldly pleasures. It is a call to live like a skilled athlete, who completely dedicates his or her life to competing at the highest level of competition. It is the same imagery used by early martyrs and monks to describe their lifestyles and devotions to Christ. It is the same imagery of a husband's dedication to one wife or one wife's commitment to her husband. So Christ is teaching his disciples that salvation requires the same level of determination. But there's just one problem. 
Ancient Israel was pretty apathetic. They were lazy and comfortable with their religion. Some of them comfortably treated their religion just like any other activity. Well, on Mondays, I have hot yoga. On Tuesdays, of course, I have tacos. Well, Fridays, those are for happy hours with my friends. Ah, and Sundays, oh yes, Sunday mornings for God, but then after that, it's brunch and mimosas and football in the afternoon. Some of them apathetically equated religion with their nationality. Oh, God loved our founding father, Abraham, and um, I'm a descendant of Abraham, ergo, God loves me. After all, I'm pretty patriotic. I love my country. Why wouldn't God love me? And some of them simply thought that they just had plenty of time. Oh, I'll get serious about my religion whenever I'm in my 30s. But then their 30s roll around and they move it down to when they're 40. 40 rolls around and they keep moving it down to when they're older and older. Or maybe they thought, well, if God gives me a good job or a really hefty bank account, well, then I'll get serious about my religion. Many of these people were comfortable with where they were. They didn't want to strive to enter into a difficult door. Now, I don't want to be an alarmist. I don't want to cause anybody to have night terrors. But Jesus is telling us not to delay. He's telling us that we must act now. The door to the kingdom will shut. Now, I think in this specific context, Jesus is speaking of a transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament a transition from ancient Judaism to Christianity. But the application still applies to us today. Today is the day of salvation. Call upon the Lord while you can so that you may be saved. Christianity was never meant to be just another hobby. It is meant to be your ultimate priority on Sunday and every other day of the week. We are meant to strive to enter the narrow door today and tomorrow and the next day in every day of our lives. Even now, we should pray that God would help us press into that narrow door. We should ask him to reshape and reorganize our lives. He says that there is going to be an inevitable reshaping, which is going to take place. Why not start now? The last will be first, and the first will be last. Uh, This is one of the verses that I call a t-shirt and tattoo verse. It's relatively inoffensive in our culture, and people like to display it on their bodies in one way or another. But look at how the Pharisees respond to Jesus' talk of this great reversal. It leads to our second interruption, an interruption of fear. The Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, you have to get out of here because Herod is trying to kill you. Now, this last week, as I was thinking about this interruption, I found it really interesting. It looks like the Pharisees, who were usually out to get Jesus, it looks like they have Jesus' best interest at heart. Jesus, these guys are trying to kill you. You need to get out of here. Now, surely you or I would be glad to receive such a warning, whether it came from our best friend or our mortal enemy. Hey, don't go in there. Somebody's trying to hurt you. We would be glad and thank them. So are the Pharisees being nice to Jesus? Well, some commentators think that the Pharisees were indeed being kind. After all, not all the Pharisees were bad. Nicodemus and Gamaliel showed their kindness towards Christ and Christians. So maybe these Pharisees were kind of like Nicodemus. But there is another theory out there, however, which says that the Pharisees are upset with Jesus' words 
And they're just thinking of anything they can to get him to leave. You see, the Pharisees were the elite of that day. They were the first in the religious hierarchy, and they did not want to be deposed. If Christ kept talking about these great reversals, they would be out of jobs and they would lose their status. So they used Herod's violent reputation as a way to shoo Jesus along. But Jesus is not scared. People have been trying to kill him his whole life. When he was a young child, this Herod's father, who was also named Herod, killed all the baby boys in an entire region because he was trying to kill Jesus. I recently learned that these young martyrs are still remembered today, and they are known as the Holy Innocents. So even from the time when Jesus was a baby, people were trying to kill him. And whenever Jesus began his public ministry in Luke 4, do you remember what happened to him? Well, his first audience, the Nazarenes, tried to throw him off a cliff. So Jesus isn't scared of Herod. If anything, he's used to these threats. As Luke frequently likes to point out, Jesus was a prophet. He was the prophet. And there is only one location for such a prophet to die. That is Jerusalem. Herod had one territory that was kind of divided in two regions. uh, Galilee, which was north of Jerusalem, and Perea, which was east of Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus had to have been in one of those two locations. And he was not scared of dying because he was away from Jerusalem. He knew as a prophet that I could only die in Jerusalem, so I don't need to worry about Herod. And I love Christ's prophetic boldness when he addresses Herod's threat. He calls him a fox. Now, calling someone a fox usually means that they are cunning or sneaky. It could possibly mean that you find them attractive, but I don't think that fits this context. (laughs) Calling someone a fox in the ancient culture can also mean that you are calling them a nobody, somebody that's worthless. So Jesus' response could be interpreted something like this. Go and tell that nobody king I have a message for him. Tell him that I'm going to keep healing, I'm going to keep casting out demons, and I'm going to keep preaching the gospel. Why? Because I'm the true king, and he's a phony king. In verse 35, Jesus quotes Psalm 118, which was our psalm for the family service around Thanksgiving time. Psalm 118 is a psalm about a victorious king who returns from all of this epic fighting and battle to the city of Jerusalem and to the temple, leading everybody in worship. It's the same psalm that is quoted, and actually the same verse, that Jesus' disciples sing when he enters Jerusalem on a donkey. Blessed is the one, or blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. One of the verses we said right before the Lord's Supper. But this prophetic king has a third office, that of a priest. And in Jerusalem, we see him acting as a priest. He administers the ultimate sacrifice. He became the ultimate sacrifice for us and for our salvation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city of priestly kings like Melchizedek, David, and Solomon, the city whose very name means peace is also the city that destroys the prophets and the apostles, the city that killed the author of life, the Lord of glory. But it is also the city of the resurrection and the origin of our salvation. 
Jesus set his face like a flint, like a rock to go to Jerusalem. And as disciples of Christ, we are called to strive for the door which opens to Jerusalem. Not the old city, which we can find on a map, or even book a vacation to on our time off. Rather, we are called to strive for the new Jerusalem. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul reflects on two Jerusalems, the old Jerusalem and the new Jerusalem. The old Jerusalem, he says, corresponds to slavery and to bondage. Paul says the old Jerusalem is like Hagar, the servant. The old Jerusalem is the first that has become the last. But Paul describes the new Jerusalem as that which was last and has now become the first. The new Jerusalem corresponds to freedom. She is like Sarah, the free woman. And in this Jerusalem, we are free. We are no longer slaves to sin, to the world, and to the devil. The heavenly Jerusalem is our new mother. Like Sarah, she was once barren, apart from divine intervention. And now, with the divine intervention of Christ, the new heavenly Jerusalem has many children. Now she has more children than the, star, than the heavens have stars. And now the new Jerusalem has more descendants than all the beaches and deserts of the world have sand. The heavenly Jerusalem is our ultimate destination, the place for which we strive amidst periodic interruptions. And there is only one way to enter this heavenly city. We must pass through a door, a narrow door, but an open door, a door with arms stretched wide, welcoming those who come from east and west, welcoming those who come from north and south, a door with blood upon its frames, the blood of the Passover lamb smeared for us, the lamb of God. But the master of the new Jerusalem warns us that the door will one day close. When will it close? How many will be on the inside? How many will be on the outside? Well, these are the mysteries of God, reserved only for God, at least for now. I believe they are also reserved for us, but only at the end of our journey, when everything will make sense as we look back, when we see the ultimate mystery face to face, no longer through a veil. Christ is the ultimate mystery. He is the answer to all of our questions, and he is the courage for all of our fears. Jesus Christ is the door, and he has invited all of us into his mysterious uniting of all things. All things in heaven and all things on earth are recapitulated in Christ. Now we see only dimly, but one day we shall see in full. Now we only know in part, but one day we shall know in full. Yes, the door will one day close, but not until Christ has gathered all of his people together, all of his elect saints and angels joined in one, and all of his living masterpieces and poems coming together in one book. Not until all of his prophets, priests, kings, and queens have come together. When they have all entered into his kingdom, then the door will be shut. Not as a book that shuts at the end of a story, though, but as the pages of an introduction ends, and the true story begins. No one will be left outside of the heavenly Jerusalem who desires to enter. So let us strive together as we journey on and enter through the narrow door, through Jesus Christ himself. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for this time that we can come and listen uh, to your word, worship you, and enjoy the Lord's Supper. We pray that you would help us all to strive as one unified body towards the new Jerusalem, towards heaven, which we can only obtain through Christ. I pray that you would make us salt and light as we go out into the world. May Christianity, may the cross of Christ, may your truths be our ultimate priority, and may we share that good news with those around us. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.